Well, I'm going to start with a true, wonderful, but very dangerous statement. You ready? You were made for glory and greatness. You were made for glory and greatness. In fact, I want you to say that statement yourself out loud, maybe to someone sitting nearby. Ready? I was made for glory and greatness. I wonder how you feel as you say those words. Maybe it feels good. Maybe it feels inspirational. Maybe you've turned to your wife and said, see, I've been telling you this for years. He agrees with me. Or, or maybe you feel weird, awkward, embarrassed. Does it feel wrong? Some of you are just wondering if you've got the right YouTube channel, right? Uh, is this the right church? This feels like a, a Tony Robbins motivational speech. But actually, this statement comes from the part of the Bible that we're looking at this morning. And so I take it that it is true, that it is wonderful, but it's also dangerous. It's dangerous because the Bible will define glory and greatness very narrowly. We can't just come at it however we like how the people around us come at glory and greatness. This statement doesn't mean that you ought to expect success in your career, in your family, in art, in sport, or whatever you put your hand to. This statement that you were made for glory and greatness doesn't mean that you will rise above mental illness, that you will dodge all the hardships of life. And actually, the Bible defines glory and greatness so narrowly that it's not a case of near enough, good enough. But if we don't land where the Bible does, instead of glory, we find shame. And instead of greatness, we find ruin. And so it's a dangerous statement if we don't unpack it, if we don't put other truths around it, which we will do this morning. But up front, I want to be clear, it is also a wonderful statement that God intends you to know the glory and greatness for which you were made, and it is found only in his son, Jesus, at the heart of the message of Christianity. And this statement is actually connected to the big reason that the author of this letter that we called Hebrews writes. He is writing, as we'll see over and over again, so that the Christians that he writes to would stick with Jesus. He puts it like this, do not drift. We saw that last week. Do not give up meeting together as Christians. Do not throw away your confidence you must persevere. This writer writes to Christians to say, come to Jesus, stick with Jesus. And he uses a bunch of different reasons to cause us to stick with Jesus. Some negatively framed, some positively. Last week, we looked at a negative one. Don't drift from Jesus, stick with him, lest you face judgment. This week, we'll see one of the reasons is a positive one. Come to Jesus, stick with Jesus, so that you might know glory and greatness for which you are made. Let me take us through that statement in three movements that we see in the passage here. Glory, tragedy, glory. Number one, glory, verse five. It is not to angels that he, that's God, has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. 
So there's a world to come. There's this life, there's this world, but there's a life to come, a world to come, which previously in Hebrews has been spoken of as salvation. And so who will rule, who will reign over this world to come? To whom will it be subject to? Well, we're told that it's not angels. So who will it be? Well, he starts to give clues to the answer in verse 6. But there is a place where someone has testified. And he goes on to quote Psalm 8 that we've just read. Now, just don't you love how he references someone there? If there are any high school teachers or lecturers listening in, just note that next time one of your students hands in an essay and just says, well, someone somewhere (laughs) said something. And just remember, it's biblical. All right. He's quoting Psalm 8. And it's so significant, it's worth us coming back there. Lynn read it for us, but come back in your Bibles. Psalm 8, which is a wonderful psalm. And I want to draw out two surprising things about God and about humanity. Okay, firstly, about God. The psalm note starts with praise to the Lord. How majestic is his name in all the earth. It moves on to talk, verse 3, that this God is creator of all. When, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, this is a mighty, powerful God who has created all things. And as he considers the moon and the stars, God made them with his fingers. Now, when humans want to build something big, we get powerful machines and up the tall building goes. When God puts galaxies in place, he crafts them with his fingers. Now, this is poetic language, okay? Don't get tripped up on that. But the function of it is to say that God is just so much bigger and outside and beyond even a massive galaxy. There's no surprise there that God is massive as creator. The surprise about God is just how personally and carefully uh, intimate he is with his creation. He doesn't outsource the building works like most of us do when we get a reno he's concerned to look after every detail himself the surprise is that god is closely involved with this creation but then it moves to humanity because not only did god create the stars and the moon with his fingers verse 4 what is mankind that you are mindful of them human beings that you care for them the psalmist reflects wow that god is mindful of me little old me and my race you know life as a human being at six foot above ground is one perspective but you go up one of those tall buildings you know that feeling where you look down center point tower or whatever it's called now and and you just see people who look like ants it's fascinating but then you go up into a satellite and you you see our earth just looking like a soccer ball And then we see those images on YouTube or in science classes that compares that soccer ball to other planets and stars. And we just see, who am I? Who are we? Have you had that moment as you look up at the night sky? That's not surprising that humanity is tiny. But we're also not just tiny, we're temporary. We're we're here for a moment and then we're gone. I mean, I think about this as I go down to the beach. The rocks down there have seen generation after generation. And we just keep moving on. Here's the surprising thing about humanity. Not that we're tiny and temporary, but that we're glorious. 
you, God, have crowned humanity with glory and honor. Catch that. It's almost scandalous because verse 1, it's the Lord who is the one and only king whose majesty rules across the earth. But here we have the one and only king crowning humanity, (laughs) making humanity kings. Moves on, you've made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. This reaches back to Genesis 1, where in the creation account, God makes humanity in his image, male and female, he creates them. And then he extends his dominion to humanity to rule over all the creation. So that humanity is not just another animal but rather made in the image of God, unique to all other creatures. And as image bearers, God extends his nature of ruler to humanity. God made humanity to rule over all creation. God made humanity for glory and greatness. There's the surprising thing about us. Now, we're starting to already put some pieces in place to help avoid some of the dangers in that statement. Firstly, this glory note is not achieved by mankind, but rather it's given by God. This glory, this greatness, is not something that we get about building, it's what God bestows. And secondly, Note that our greatness is defined in relation to God, in relationship with God. Notice how this psalm ends. It ends just as it begins. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Having reflected on the wonder and glory of humanity to rule over all creation, the psalmist doesn't stop there. The psalmist finishes by again reflecting on the majesty of of God, from whom any dignity, worth, splendor in humanity comes from. This is critical for a proper understanding of the glory and greatness for which you were made. And it then helps explain the jarring second movement back in Hebrews 2. So come back there, Hebrews chapter 2. There's the first thing. We see the glory of humanity as God intended as he created. But secondly, we now see the tragedy of humanity. Remember the question raised in verse 5. To whom will the world to come be subjected to? It won't be angels. He then quotes Psalm 8, which suggests maybe humanity, given that in the first world, in the first creation, comprehensive dominion was given to humanity by God and he he sums that up second half of verse 8 in putting everything under them God left nothing that is not subject to them yet at present we do not see everything subject to them talk about one of the biggest understatements in the Bible or if not an understatement, one of the briefest comments that actually helps make sense of life. It's one of the profound things about the Bible. If you will come to it on its own terms, you'll find that it'll actually help you make sense 
of the world in which you live, the life, the experience that you have. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to humanity. Now we have a sense, don't we, an, an inbuilt, innate sense that humanity was made for something special, is something other than just any animal. And we see evidence of this, don't we? Especially as we seek to master and tame and build and grow things. And we do. There's all kinds of domains where you see human rule flourishing. Space. Did you see that clip last week of William Shatner, the, the uh, Star Trek actor, who went up into space at 90 years old, no less. Amazing. We are conquering in medicine. So that if you lose a limb now, we can reprint one with a 3D printer. We can restore sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. The elements. We've conquered the elements with air conditioning. What about distance and time? We've conquered that with the internet. There are all sorts of examples where we do see human dominion. Many things that have been mastered by us that are subject to us. But, of course, for all the evidence of progress, of dominion, there is far more evidence of creation actually ruling over us, of us being subjected to it. From the trivial things, you know, like why does it always rain as soon as you put your washing out? Or I have a deck that I try and oil once a year, keep the timber healthy. Why is it that even in the middle of a drought, you can be sure that as soon as I go to oil my deck, rains for a week? What is that? I'm supposed to be man who rules over this creation. Uh-uh. We see it in the trivial, but of course we see it in the devastating. Uh, with fires and floods and famines. With tsunamis and earthquakes and viruses that just brings mass suffering to humans who are supposed to reign over all of this. And then even the things that we have mastered end up pulling us down into slavery. We actually become victims to our own success. So that rocket technology that will put 90-year-olds into space will also be used to launch missiles on women, children and innocents. Medical technology that can save life is used to take life of the most vulnerable. And the internet, which sure brings all sorts of conveniences, is now the home to the modern slave market. So that pornography would prop up the modern sex trafficking movement. And for all the reasons we, you, are to flee from pornography, one of them is that you would have nothing to do with the sex trade movement. Then we have death. So that no matter what we master, even we kind of manage to uphold it and it doesn't come back and eat us, death has the last laugh. It has mastery over every single one of us. Why? If God made humanity to rule over all, to be crowned with glory and honor, why so frustrating? Why not Psalm 8? Why not Genesis 1? Because of Genesis 3. Because humanity sought glory and greatness apart from God. By making ourselves 
rivals to God. Adam and Eve bought into the idea that they could be equal with God rather than being truly free under God in relation to his will and his word. And every one of their children since has shown themselves to be a chip off the old block. The result being our true humanity is destroyed. We actually fail to be truly, fully human as God intended. Yes, we still bear God's image, though it's marred. And we still have the mandate to rule over his creation on his behalf, but it is horribly frustrated. All that we were intended to be as man and woman has not been realized. And here's the thing, cannot be realized. We might be made for glory and greatness. We might have a sense of that, each one of us. But human history is a long tail of evidence that shows that utopia is not just around the corner. We're in a current moment of history that, at least in Western culture, has that sense about it. That, that utopia is just around the corner. And all we need to do is kind of dismantle and finally kill off the things that have propped up Western civilization for the last two years, primarily Christianity and all it gives rise to. When we can finally dismantle all of that, we will arrive at liberty, at peace, at contentment. Just watch any Apple, Netflix or even Disney show to see this mood in our moment. And whilst there is a sense that we are pioneering something new, that this is an exciting moment for human history, it's just the age-old sin of seeking glory and greatness apart from God. Proudly working to take it for ourselves rather than humbly receive it from God. And... This moment, like all previous ones, will only end in frustration to achieve its goal. Sure, some things may be corrected and improved along the way, and we can be thankful for those. But at the end of the day, it will still be an empty humanism that falls short of fulfilling the purpose for which we were made, our true humanity, to rule and to reign with glory and honour especially as each one of us remains subject to death. Remember that question of verse 5? Who will rule the world to come that God will bring? Not angels. Well, maybe if humanity was intended to rule this world, this creation, it'll be humanity that rules the world to come. But you could imagine God saying... You've made a spectacular mess of this world, of the mandate that I gave you. You have thrown in my face. What makes you think that it will be humanity that will rule over the world to come? You can imagine God saying that, but he doesn't. Instead, he says something like, yeah, you've blown it. And my judgment will come upon humanity for it, but. I love you so much 
that I am going to do something about the problem that each one of you face. I'm going to make a way out of judgment. I'm going to make a way through judgment. And I'm going to make a new humanity. A new humanity who will rule over my new world. Which brings us to the third movement and the glory of the gospel. So we've seen the glory that humanity was intended for. We've seen the tragedy as we fall so short of that glory. But thirdly, we see glory, we see a greater glory for humanity in Jesus. Because yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, us, humanity. But there's more to be seen. Verse 9. We do see Jesus. Now this is the first time that his name is used in the book, which is surprising because this book has been all about Jesus, hasn't it? But it's been referring to Jesus as the Son, the Son of God. And it's the man Jesus who comes into sharp focus here. And we read there that in verse 9, he was made lower than the angels for a little while. Now just notice the shift in language as we've moved from Psalm 8 into into Hebrews 2 where it's quoted now into verse 9. The shift, did you pick it up? In verse 7 there as the psalm is quoted, humanity, man, is made a little lower than the angels. But verse 9, we read, Jesus was made lower than the angels for a little while. Do you see the shift? One, the first reading is talking about degree, being made lower than the angels is talking about a status or a degree, lower than. But being made lower than the angels, but by being made, as we see in verse 9, lower than the angels for a little while, we're now talking about a period of time. This is actually one of the tricky things about understanding this passage if you've done some close reading of it this work you might have picked it up especially if you've got an older NIV translation you'll be going what are you talking about that's not what my verse 9 says an older NIV translation has that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels but then in a newer NIV that I'm reading from as well as an ESV and most other translations actually we see that Jesus was made lower than the angels for a little while. Now, what's going on there? Why do we have a difference? Well, because the original, the Greek there, is ambiguous and could be translated either way. And so you've kind of got to make a decision about what's being intended here. And I think what we've got here in the newer NIV, the ESV, that Jesus was made lower than the angels for a little while, best fits the context which I put to you, is tracking the movement of Jesus in his incarnation, his suffering, and his exaltation. Let me tell you what I mean. In Psalm 8, then again in Hebrews 2 verse 7, it's it's quoted, being made a little lower than the angels is paralleled to the next line, which is to be crowned with glory and honour. Do you see that? Did you notice in the psalm? It's a common form of Hebrew poetry. It's called parallelism, where one truth will be stated 
And then the same truth will be stated in the second line using slightly different language. It's a parallel. But actually, in verse 9, instead of being a parallel, being made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honour, it's actually a contrast with Jesus being made lower than the angels for a little while, first state, now crowned with glory and honour, second state. Now, Jesus is fully man in both states, but his experience as a man is different. In the first state, being made lower than the angels for a little while, he is always in perfect relationship with God. But the context of that relationship is, is away from God's heavenly presence, which the angels know. And, and Jesus, he is subject to suffering temptation and all that comes with life outside of the garden jesus is subject particularly to death but then in the second state crowned with glory and honor is jesus the man who has finally become fully human what man was intended to be as he sits at the right hand of god in the immediate presence of god as all creation is now in, uh, subject to him and the one who has mastered even death. Made lower than the angels for a little while. The suffering away from the heavenly presence of God under death, crowned with glory and honour, the state that Jesus now enjoys. Now what stands between the two states? His unique death. Verse 9. Because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It's because of his unique death. Now, there's nothing unique about a human being dying. Right? Death and taxes. Absolutely nothing unique. It comes for all of us. There's nothing unique about a man dying for a good cause. Plenty of ex examples through history of that. There wasn't even anything unique about a man dying on a cross. In fact, at one point, the Romans crucified so many people, they ran out of trees to make crosses to kill them. So what made Jesus' death on a Roman cross as a man so unique? It was the sinless life that was laid down it was the sinless life that was laid down that's one of the big messages that hebrews is going to bring to us about jesus the man jesus see human death is the result of being cut off from the god of life because of sin so that in every human death our lives are stained by sin not Jesus. He dies having lived a perfectly righteous life. This is the one point where he is different to us. He never sought glory, greatness apart from God, as Adam was intended to do but failed to do. Jesus, as the second Adam, the true man, found glory and greatness, found freedom in obedience to God. And so his perfect life could be offered 
as a substitute on behalf of stained humanity. His fellow brother and sisters, as we'll see next week. So that, that beautiful phrase, he might taste death for everyone. And having done this, he was raised to life as the man who now has mastery over all creation, over death, and who sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Chapter 1, verse 3. Verse 5, who is going to rule over the world to come? Not angels, but Jesus. And the new humanity of which he is the head. You and I, we have no hope. We're not worthy of it. But here's where we can be part of it. Here's where we can be raised back up to what we were intended for. Because look at the result of Jesus' work, his death, verse 10. It's to bring many sons and daughters to glory. I don't think there are many more beautiful, wonderful ways to express your Christian identity than to think of yourself as a son, a daughter who has been brought to glory, brought to God. Jesus raises humanity up from our fall as the perfect man. So that in him, not ourselves, so that in him, by looking to him and trusting in him, we might actually achieve the purpose for which God created us to rule and reign. Which is why the New Testament speaks like this. If we endure in our faith in Jesus, we will also reign with him, with Jesus, in the world to come. 2 Timothy 2 verse 12. Or 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3. Don't you know that we will judge angels? Revelation 5 verse 10. The lamb who was slain has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and we will reign on the earth. Now remember how Psalm 8 ends. It doesn't stop just focusing on the glory of humanity, but on the majesty of God. We must do the same. The goal of this passage, in fact, this whole book, is to not focus on ourselves, but on Christ, on who he is and what he's done. And so the reasons to come to him, if you aren't a follower of Jesus, and to stick with him, to hold fast to him. But here's the wonder of the reason that we've been considering this morning, to come to Jesus, to stick with him. It's that God will glorify himself. That's his chief concern, rightly. As he holds out his one and only son, the man Jesus Christ, who, by faith in him, being joined to him, brings us to glory. That we might know the purpose for which we're made. Greatness and glory to be fully human you won't find a message like this anywhere else one that is grounded in history with evidence that you can push and prod to see that it's true come to christ if you haven't done that you will not find glory and greatness that you have a sense that you are made for apart from him come to him trust him and as you've done that don't 
drift from him. Where else will you go? Anywhere else that you go will lead to shame and ruin. But if you stick with Christ, glory and greatness. Let me finish by applying this in two particular ways to us and quite briefly. The first is to be patient. As you hear me talk about glory and greatness that you were made for, you might well be sitting there going, there is nothing that feels glorious or great about me, about my life, about my circumstances. Are you serious? Well, here's the thing. Verse 5, there is a world to come. Tell me, where else in your week have you heard voices, messages, people encouraging you to think about a world, not this one, but one to come? Nowhere except in the Word of God who continues to bring up before us an eternal perspective. It continues to say, measure your life on the scale of eternity. And it's real. It's not a pipe dream. It is real as this flesh and blood and this time and this day. It is real. It is coming a world to come. And so this glory and this greatness, it's right that we sense, I don't have it. I don't feel it. That's right. It awaits us in all its fullness in the world to come. And so now we be patient. And this is actually quite liberating. It doesn't take away the suffering and the hardship, but it's liberating because it says this life isn't it. It doesn't have to be perfect. It can't be, it won't be, but it is true that some seem to do better than others, isn't it? It is true that some just have have this kind of um, unfair, unexplainable amount of suffering come their way. I see it. I get it. I can't explain it. But it's liberating. You don't have to have all of that now. No one will. But you will have it in the world to come in Christ. If you would trust in him and stick with him. Our best life is yet to come. This helps us make sense of the life that we live in. A life outside of the garden and not yet in the world to come. And, and capture the time frame. I know it feels like this hardship is going on and on. Haven't the last three, four months felt like an eternity? Maybe you've got something else big in your life that just feels massive. Capture the language here. It's for a little while. Uh, Jesus' entire life of suffering was summed up as a little while. In the scheme of eternity, that's what it'll be. It'll be a lunch break. Be patient. And secondly, as we are patient, as we await glory and greatness and all its fullness in the world to come, consider what glory and greatness looks like in this moment, in this age, as we follow Jesus. And it looks like sacrificial service. See, Jesus, the man, the perfect man, becomes the pattern for us in his earthly life of what glory and greatness looks like now. And so we see that it is a pattern marked by sacrificial service. There is glory. There is greatness. 
It's not in your work, in your career, in your family, in your real estate portfolio. Whatever you might see others around you measuring greatness, and it's, it's not there, it's empty. It leads to shame and ruin. Glory and greatness for you right now is that you would trust Jesus, that you would be in him, and that as you do that, you would serve him and his purposes even when it costs. And in fact, especially as it costs. Otherwise, what is it? It's just another thing that kind of floats our boat and fulfills our lives. But sacrificial service, it hurts, it costs. That's the pattern that Jesus gives us of glory and greatness now. The one who suffered death, that he might taste death for everyone. As you've heard, we are very excited to be regathering next week, to be coming home as church family, uh, and recognize that this will be something that kind of happens over the coming weeks and months as more and more of us are able to come back. But it is very exciting. Hear this, know this. There is no switch on the wall that we can go and walk up to and flick to get church going again. To get it back to pre-lockdown or even pre-COVID. We very much are in a moment where we need to rebuild And like you heard Dave say earlier, not just staff, but us together, the people of God, rebuild these ministries together. Would you, in contrast to the world around us who's kind of thinking about a new normal that could be cruisier than it was before lockdown, before COVID, would you embrace glory and greatness in sacrificial service? Because that's the pattern that Jesus gives us. And would you do that in a very particular way in considering how you can be part of getting church going again? Just our week-to-week bread and butter. Seriously, so much is needed to get that up off the ground again. And more, as you heard, summer. Praise God that we have opportunities to have people come on site. Uh, Summerfest, especially as you heard the needs, particularly with our little kids. There are a bunch of needs. I want to urge you to go to that website that you heard Karina speak about, to consider how you could jump in to be part of rebuilding and do it in a way that's going to cost so that you might know the glory and greatness of following Jesus now as you look forward to and as you bring the gospel to others who will hear about glory and greatness in all its fullness in the world to come. Let me pray for us. Father, wow, as we, as we hear the gospel each time, our hearts rejoice. At least they ought to rejoice and we are sorry for being slow. Please, might our affections catch up to the wonderful truths that we know that we've heard and we see Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who suffered in order that he might lift us up out of our suffering. We thank you, Jesus. We praise you, Jesus. We want to live for you, Jesus. And so please, would you give us your spirit to do that. Bless our efforts in the coming weeks and months that more and more people on the coast 
might take steps towards knowing Jesus and therefore knowing the glory and greatness that he has for them, we pray it in his name. Amen.